And we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It Man. Today, we're going to be covering the 9-11 conspiracy side of the house. Uh, we got a lot to cover. This is a five-hour documentary. This is probably going to be part one of either two or three, depending on how much we can get through. But we got a lot to cover, guys. Let's get right into it. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what Fed It covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed... Lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. You see him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young slime life here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants is 6 9 and then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, 6 9 ran with. I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. A.K.A. Bush I.C. violated. In order to stay away from the victim. Bush I.C. arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, Miami Strip Club, injured one person. The, this is the one that, that's going to fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, it happened at the gun range. Here's your boy, 42 Doug, right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. I'm going to love my fifth woman. And well, the first bomb went off right here. Suspect two down a backpack at the site of the second explosion. Inspired by Al-Qaeda. Two terrorists, their brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lin Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country. As this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay? Trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. The days of the police are gone. So he was in this bad boy. We're going to go over his past, the gang ties, so that this all makes sense. All right, we're back. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It, man. Quick announcements. Uh, number one, party tickets are still on sale, guys. So if you want to jump in on the party, January 14th, Christina's actually helping us with that. She's in the house as well. She's going to be helping with the logistics of the party, getting the venue, everything else like that. Um, so tickets are on sale. Also, guys, I'm on uh, Anchor on anchor.fm slash fedit. 1811. We're uploading an episode every single day, pretty much. Uh, well, no, sorry, not every single day, but we're uploading every single episode onto Anchor so you guys can listen to it in audio format. And uh, yeah, guys, don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. So without further ado, today's episode, guys, we're going to go ahead and get into the conspiracy side of the house when it comes to 9-11. As you guys know, this is a multi-part series. Part one, we covered the 9-11 attacks and how the FBI investigated the case and was able to identify Al-Qaeda. Then from there, identifying al-Qaeda, figured out bin Laden was behind it. Then we went into episode two, which covered how the CIA tracked and found bin Laden in Abbottabad, Pakistan. Then part three was how the Navy SEALs raided the compound, found bin Laden, killed bin Laden, and what they actually found in his house to include his personal notes, what was on his hard drive, etc. And we were able to kind of get an idea of what bin Laden had planned had he not been killed by the Navy SEALs back, <clears throat> uh, back then. Uh, now we're going to get into part four, of this 9-11 uh, multi-part series. And we're going to go ahead and cover the conspiracy theories around this. So for all you guys out there that have been waiting, I got y'all. We're finally getting into the conspiracy part, which we're going to watch a documentary called The New Pearl Harbor. It's a five-hour long documentary, guys. More than likely, I'm going to have to break this up into either two to three parts. Um, there's different segments of the documentary. And uh, yeah, man, I mean, they make some valid points here. Good, good critique. So um, watch it together. Break it down. And, uh, yeah, let's get right into it. Uh, Christine, you got anything for the people before we get into this bad boy? Yeah, if you guys have any cases. Into the mic. Oh, sorry. If you guys have any cases you want to do, so contact the IG, Fede1811. Cool. 
Yeah, and she's uh, she manages that, so she'll go ahead. Uh, you know, I know you guys have been giving her uh, case review uh, cases that you guys yeah. want us to review on there, and you know, questions and everything else like that. And guys that want to help out with the video, uh, the videos like gathering court documents stuff, we appreciate you guys. You guys are the best. Yeah, because um, we have a long list of cases people want, but it takes hours to go through everything mm. and find everything. Yes, especially stuff like the young Dolph. You know what I mean? Because uh, <sighs> yeah. for that, they're they've been they've been like kind of threatening people that we. We're trying to send over there to do it so we'll get it we'll find a way yeah we will get it guys we, we will we'll get it for y'all so um okay so let's go ahead and bring this on screen guys this is going to be the new pearl harbor uh and actually shout out to sneeko uh he's the one that put me onto this thing saying to watch it and the, the documentary does make some good points so uh the beginning part here guys they're going to pretty much draw parallels between pearl harbor right from the 40s um to 9 11 and some of the similarities Let's go ahead and get right into it, guys. On the very day of September 11, several commentators drew a parallel with the historical events of Pearl Harbor. And it's a day that will, as was the case with Pearl Harbor, live in infamy in American history. The last time there was an attack like this on the United States was Pearl Harbor. Reminiscent of another terrible day, the attack on Pearl Harbor. But there was also someone on the same day who offered a prediction. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, guess what we did? We went back and found out that yes, the evidence was there. We should have known. And again, I think what we're going to see, even in this instance, this Pearl Harbor of the 21st century is very much the same kind of thing. In fact, the more information that has been emerging about September 11th, the more we have come to realize that many different aspects of the two events bear a chilling resemblance to each other. And just for some of you guys that are wondering, man, uh, what Pearl Harbor was, because some of you guys might be too young to uh, understand this, man. It was an attack on us by the Japanese on December 7th, 1941, uh, basically in Hawaii. And I'll show you guys real quick here, share screen with y'all. Um, uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor was a surprise military strike by the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service upon the United States against a naval base at Pearl Harbor in, Hon in Honolulu, Honolulu, territory of Hawaii, just before 8 a.m. on Sunday, December 7th, 1941. And you guys are going to go ahead and get some of the implications that led, uh, what led to um, America's future after Pearl Harbor. So they're basically drawing, you know, similarities between the two events, right? While both events were needed by the U.S. to go to war, in both cases, the ultimate goal was not the one initially stated. Roosevelt knew a surprise Japanese attack would enrage the public and jumpstart the American war machine. In this way, FDR would get backdoor entry into what he really wanted. War with Hitler. According to their own documents, before 9-11, the neocons knew that a surprise attack like a new Pearl Harbor would enrage the public and jumpstart the war machine against Afghanistan. In this way, they would get a backdoor entry into what they really wanted, the war with Saddam Hussein. In the very beginning, there was a conviction uh, that Saddam Hussein was a bad person and that he needed to go. He says that going after Saddam Hussein was topic A 10 days after the inauguration, eight months before September 11th. Before All right. Who is Saddam Hussein, guys? Real quick so that you guys kind of understand, because, again, some of you guys might not be uh, geo geopolitically inclined. Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein Abdel Majid El Takiri, his full name, was an Iraqi politician who served as the fifth president of Iraq from July 6, 1979 uh, until April 9th. Uh, 2003. And for some of you guys that are old enough to remember, this is right around the time when we invaded Iraq, which was in late 
uh, March. Okay, and he actually ended up uh, dying. Uh, when did he die? Uh, let's see here. He was uh, he died. Yeah, December thirtieth, uh, two thousand six. I remember seeing the video. They hung him. They hung him. But this was him, guys. This was Public Enemy number one back in the day. Uh, in the early 2000s was uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq because they had invited, evaded, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia. You know, we had the whole desert storm, invading Kuwait, whatever. So uh, Saddam Hussein was definitely an enemy of the United States back then. Before and during the war, the propaganda machine made a relentless effort to create a direct connection between Hitler and Japan. One poll taken immediately after Pearl Harbor showed that more than 60% of Americans believed that Germany was behind the attack. The Bush-Cheney propaganda machine made an even harder effort to create a direct association between Iraq and Osama bin Laden. By the end of 2003, nearly 70% of Americans believed that Saddam was implicated in the September 11 attacks. Top levels of the Roosevelt administration knew in advance that Pearl Harbor was going to be attacked. General Marshall and Admiral Stark and indeed FDR indeed knew that Pearl Harbor was being painted for a bombing run by the Japanese. Secretary of State Cordell Hull even knew the exact day of the attack, a week before it took place. Cordell Hull was Secretary of State. And he called me on Saturday morning and he started to relate that Pearl Harbor would be attacked on December the 7th. Before September 11, many in the intelligence community knew the attacks were on their way. There was so much discussion about this attack. Everybody was talking about it. George Tenet had some meetings. Other, other analysts had meetings at the White House. Vital information on the Japanese attack was kept from those who could have used it to defend the Hawaiian port and to minimize the number of American casualties. Two men could use that information immediately. Admiral Husband Kimmel and Lieutenant General Walter Short, the commanders at Pearl Harbor. But they never get it. According to Hill, that was no mistake. If FDR and his administration deliberately withheld the vital intelligence from Pearl Harbor, and all the evidence indicates that they did, then it was certainly a deliberate conspiracy to set Pearl Harbor up for a total defeat. Before September 11, important information was kept from counterterrorism czar Richard Clark, who could have organized a defense and even have prevented the attacks altogether. You have to intentionally stop it. You have to intervene and say, no, I don't want that report to go. We therefore conclude that there was a high-level decision in the CIA ordering people not to share that information. In both cases, the pre-knowledge by the U.S. government on the upcoming attacks was denounced in front of Congress. In September 1944, Republican Representative Forrest Harness of Indiana now, made the first congressional... I want to tell you all real quick. Now, what they're saying about this, you know, at the highest levels of the CIA, etc. I will say this, as much as I make fun of the CIA for fucking shit up, I did a whole documentary on this, guys, and this is the video right here. Um, it's called Most Wanted Osama Bin Laden, How the CIA Found Him, okay? And in this, I documented how the CIA gave many warnings, guys, to um, the White House and the people higher up about bin Laden, okay? Here, and actually, you know what? Hold on. Let me, uh, you know what? You guys might not be able to hear this. Let me put this on Firefox for you guys. Bear with me one second. But that is the actual video. Hold on. Boom. 
And that's the beauty of timestamps. I could go back to my own videos. <laughs> 127.50. Okay. Which, by the way, guys, just so y'all know, all of my videos, I always put timestamps on everything, man. That's very important. 2008, 2001, Bin Laden. See, so right here. See, I have as many warnings to 9-11. So look, e April 20th, 2001, you know, planning multiple operations. Like the United States. We would have weekly or bi-weekly meetings sometimes on exactly. May 3rd, 2001, Bin Laden public profile may presage uh, pres attack. Exactly what was going on. This woman right here was one of the main people. Yeah, I know. Ha ha ha. But yes, this main uh, woman right here was one of the main targeters for Bin Laden. She had been warning uh, people about Bin Laden since the early to mid 90s, guys, uh, in the Clinton administration. So the CIA definitely had Bin Laden on their radar. It's just that no one took it seriously, you know, and it might have been over at the White House, right? Because, you know, the conspiracy theory is that they wanted to go to war and they wanted to use. Uh, <clears throat> this 9-11 uh, attack as a proxy to go ahead and get uh, go after Iraq, which, you know, let's be honest here, Bin uh, Bush's main thing is we got to go after weapons of mass destruction. That was the main uh, point that he was using to go and attack Iraq, um, which they had nothing to do with 9-11. You know, Bin Laden and his crew, that's a whole other thing. Matter of fact, and you guys know this as well, Bin Laden and Hussein did not like each other. Bin Laden volunteered to, um, it's a fight, okay, the Iraqis, when they invaded Kuwait in the 90s. The whole reason why Bin Laden hates the United States, guys, right? And I explained this, but just to give you guys a quick little thing. What happened was Iraq invaded Kuwait, which obviously is a national security risk for Saudi Arabia. So Bin Laden, you know, go off of his high of beating the Soviets in the 80s, right? In the late 70s and the 80s. Uh, and getting them out of Afghanistan. He's like, yo, I got my freedom fighters, a.k.a. what became Al-Qaeda later on. He's like, yo, I got my freedom fighters. We can help protect the kingdom. Let's do it. But what did the, the, um, Saudi Arabia do? They said, no, we're going to use the Americans. The Americans are going to protect us because, as you guys know, the United States is always going to protect this, uh, Saudi Arabia because of oil, right? The petrodollar, everything, you know, uh, the agreement that the United States had to protect the, the royal kingdom uh, for oil, okay? So Bin Laden, obviously this enraged him. He's like, how are you going to let Americans, aka non-Muslims, protect a Muslim land. This is bullshit, blah, blah, blah. So he ended up criticizing the Saudi government because of this. And what ended up happening was the Saudi government stripped him of his Saudi Arabian citizenship and pretty much ostracized them. They exiled him. So he had to go hide out in Sudan for several years and run al-Qaeda operations there. And that's where his resentment towards the United States started to build even more. He already had issues with the United States before because of the support for Israel. But the pretty much the, the straw that broke the camel's back was the United States protecting Saudi Arabia, his country, right, from uh, from potential invasion and or pre uh, national security risks from Iraq. So Osama and Saddam didn't see eye to eye at all. They didn't like each other at, at all. So the whole, we need to invade Iraq because, uh, you know, of the war against terror, etc. Mm, bin Laden and Saddam don't get along at all. And, and matter of fact, that's the whole reason why uh, Bin Laden didn't like the United States was because he wasn't allowed to fight Saddam off. <laughs> but mainstream media ain't going to cover this. And I actually cover this in detail, guys, uh, on this podcast right here, which was episode um, two of the um, of, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden and how the CIA found him. But, yeah, man, they warned him. You guys can see. Look, so frustrating when you can't figure out date and time. There's always a large band of uncertainty. Bin Laden networks plan advancing. Uh, bin Laden networks plans advancing. That's May 26th. Wish I could tell you when and where, but it's not that easy with it. I want to know where, I want to know who. 
we could not. August 3rd, 2001, threat of impending Al-Qaeda attack to continue indefinitely. Determine time, target, and method. You know, I really wish I could tell you when and where, but it's not that easy with the clandestine organization. It, well, if you just had more human assets, you did less analysis. So yeah, you know, you guys get the idea, but basically... You know, they were spending quite a bit of time on bin Laden and identifying his network and all the criminal activity he was involved in and his plots, etc. So, um, so yeah. All right, let's get back to the new Pearl Harbor. So I will say that the CIA definitely did notify the higher-ups about it, but like I said before, you know, there could have been... Who knows what they were doing over there at the White House? Maybe they didn't take the threat seriously. Maybe they didn't give a fuck. Whatever it is, incompetence, stupidity. Who knows, man? Stupid. But, you know, it's documented that the, the CIA and you guys are going to see here as well. Other government agencies also notified the United States about the impending attacks on 9-11. On a Pearl Harbor conspiracy. He said that three days before Pearl Harbor, the Australian government had warned Washington that a Japanese aircraft carrier was headed towards Hawaii. But he said that information was withheld from Kimmel and Short. After September 11, Republican Congressman Kurt Weldon denounced the pre-knowledge of information on the upcoming attacks, which was intentionally withheld from the intelligence community. This is an attempt to prevent the American people from knowing the facts about how we could have prevented 9-11, and people are covering it up today. When honest officials stumbled on important information on the Japanese attack, they went straight to their superiors, only to see that information ignored, diverted, or suppressed altogether. The chief of naval intelligence in Washington, Captain Alan Kirk, recognized the message as plans for a bombing raid, but his persistent attempts to warn Kimmel ended when he was assigned to other duties. At Pearl Harbor, the admiral had no way of knowing that Kirk had been repeatedly refused permission to warn him. In August 2001, FBI agent Colleen Rowley discovered information that could have led to uncover the September 11 plot but her memos never got past her superiors while she was prevented from pursuing the investigation any further. Finally, it turns out they were not read by the lawyer and the FBI who had the duty to send those over to the Department of Justice. Hours before the Japanese strike, Roosevelt's chief of staff, George Marshall, became... All right, so this woman, Colleen Rowley, real quick, to show y'all who this is. Um, oh, God damn it. Where'd you put it? It's right here. Sorry, guys. Um... Colleen Rowley, born December 20, 1954, is an American former FBI special agent and whistleblower and was a Democratic Farmer Labor Party DFL candidate for Congress in Minnesota's 2nd Congressional uh, District. Um, okay, Rowley is well known for testifying as to concerns regarding FBI ignoring information as a, as uh, of a suspected terrorist uh, during 9-11, which led to a two-year investigation by the Department of Justice. Also very interesting, uh, guys. So she became an agent in 1981. Uh, 1984, she spent six years uh, in New York, uh, field office doing Italian organized crime, right? Because you guys know back in the 80s, that's what they were trying to do in the 70s. Then, interestingly enough, she, 1990, she was transferred to the FBI's Minneapolis field office where she became chief division counsel. There she taught constitutional uh, law to FBI agents and police officers and oversaw the Freedom of Information Asset Forfeiture Program, Victim Witness and Community Outreach Programs. After the 9-11 attacks 2001, Raleigh wrote a paper for the FBI director, Robert Mueller, documenting how FBI HQ personnel in Washington, D.C. had mishandled and failed to take action on information provided uh, by the Minneapolis, Minnesota field office regarding the, its investigation of suspected terrorist Zecharias Masawi. Now, if you guys watched the other episode I did, again, this is why you guys got to watch the 9-11 episode that I did. 
and I'll show you all real fast. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is a video we just did with the Haram girl. Okay. <laughs> yeah. This is, that's all I speaking of Saudi Arabia. But anyway, um, this episode right here, guys, we talk about Masawi in detail how the Minneapolis office went ahead and identified him. But, you know, had they identified him sooner, who knows what could have happened. And that's what uh, Colleen Riley actually brought um, to light. So um, FBI identifies Zechariah Masawi. Comes from inside the FBI itself. Oh, hold on. I don't think, you know what? Let me. Wait, is that why she's like a whistleblower? Uh, yeah, because she she put, brought it to their attention. You know, matter of fact, let me. That's crazy. <laughs> of course, they're gonna give it the eighteen and up, man. So um, lame. Surveillance. I mean, look at it. <laughs> and as you guys can see, nicely organized timestamps once again. Go make sure to go check out this episode. This was episode one of the nine eleven uh, series. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it, man, because this took a lot of work to make, man. A lot of research. Um, see, as you guys can see right here. FBI D Zechariah Masawi and Power of Immigration and Counterterrorism. Critical. So, and this is at 12940. Comes from inside the FBI itself. We had been pushing to our management in Minneapolis to let New York know we had a subject who had to be connected to the attacks. And that's this guy prosecutors on Mr. Musawi. That's a big find. Because this guy, just to sum it up for y'all, right? And I, you guys should definitely watch the episode because I go into detail about, you know, how the FBI did their 9-11 investigation, etc. They all did, they did it from a parking lot, amazingly. But um, long story short, this guy, guys, um, he was basically came on the radar because he was trying to learn how to fly planes but not land. <laughs> Which... <laughs> You know, that should that should be a clue. Like, uh, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I just want to learn how to fly. I don't care about landing too much. Just just teach me how to fly. So that's how he got an FBI's radar, man. One of the dumbest criminals ever. Um, but yeah, Zacharias Masawi. But going back to what I was saying, right, with uh, Colleen Rowley, she criticizes Minneapolis for not getting on him sooner, okay? They only identified him after the fact once, you know, F uh, the FBI obviously had a kick in their ass that they had to go ahead and make some shit happen. <clears throat> Uh, Masawi had been suspected of being involved in preparations for a suicide hijacking similar in December 1994 Eiffel Tower hijacking of Air France 8969. Fares identified by Riley may have been left the U.S. vulnerable to September 11th attacks. Riley was one of many agents frustrated by the events that led up to the attacks writing. Quote, during the early aftermath of September 11th, when I happened to be uh, recounting the pre-September 11th events concerning the uh, Masawi investigation to other FBI personnel in other divisions or in FBI HQ, almost everyone's first question was, why? Why would an FBI agent it's, uh, agent, it's deliberately sabotage a case? I know I shouldn't be flipping about this, but jokes were actually made that the key FBI HQ personnel had to be spies or moles like Robert Hansen, which I covered his case as well, by the way, guys, go check it out. Robert Hansen, one of the worst intel leaks of U.S. history, who were actually working for Osama bin Laden to have so undercut Minneapolis's efforts. So, yeah, she's making jokes that they were so, uh, they didn't, it was so bad. Now, here's the thing that I got to tell you, because I've worked with the FBI quite a bit, done a few cases, uh, a bunch of cases with them. I'll keep it a thousand with y'all. Most FBI agents are useless, guys. Most of them don't, don't work that hard. You know, they're just collecting a paycheck. They're just chilling. Um, you know, you're always going to have your go-getter agents. And this is what any agency, this isn't just FBI. DEA has lazy agents. Um, 
HSI has lazy agents, ATF, any federal agency you could think of, three-letter agency, is always going to have slugs. That's just the way the U.S. government is, guys. Um, people sit back and collect the paycheck. 80% of the work that's actually, like, good is done by only about 20% of the per- personnel, man. That's just how it goes. So I'm not surprised that an office like Minneapolis, which is probably more than likely going to be a slower office, right, uh, in the interior, is, is it going to be that busy and guys are going to be doing stupid shit and missing a lead like that, which, you know, obviously is terrible, but let's keep it a 1,000. The FBI didn't start taking terrorism seriously until after the 9-11 attacks, after 2001. They were more focused on Italian mafias and criminal cases and maybe es- and espionage and stuff like that. But counterterrorism, yes, it was the main mission, but they did not put as much effort and resources into it until after 9-11, guys. So I think that's a very important distinction. So um, that Masawi situation, they're probably like, oh, okay, just some idiot that doesn't want to learn how to land planes. Okay, no big deal, whatever. You know, so... They didn't take it seriously, and that was extremely L. L FBI in the chat, man. L FBI in the chat. I ain't gonna lie, that's that's a big L on their part. So suddenly unavailable, delaying the process of communication within the chain of command. General George Marshall, the man who should have acted, was nowhere to be found. Colonel Rufus Bratton was responsible for keeping Marshall supplied with such vital information. For Bratton, Marshall's sudden unavailability at a time when America was on the brink of war could not have been accidental. In the crucial hours of September 11, Defense Secretary Rumsfeld and other top military became suddenly unavailable, hampering the decisional process within the chain of command. For 30 minutes, we couldn't find him. Withholding information, however, may not have been sufficient to guarantee the success of the Japanese attack. The military capacity of the Hawaiian port was also kept below its requirements. General Short, faced with the need to send out long-range patrols, had only a handful of suitable aircraft. His demands for more were not seen as a priority. On September 11, only four jets remained on alert to defend the entire sector of the country most likely to suffer an attack. I've determined, of course, that with only four aircraft, we cannot defend the whole northeastern United States. President Roosevelt gave direct orders not to interfere with the Japanese attack. President Roosevelt told General Marshall to send a message to the Hawaiian and Philippine commanders, don't interfere with Japan's overt act of war. Oh, shit. The United States desires that they, uh, Japan, commit the first overt act. There's no argument about what FDR meant. Uh, he meant that, um, that the U.S. naval plan uh, to defend Pearl Harbor should not and cannot be executed. On September 11, Vice President Cheney gave a direct order regarding the plane headed towards Washington, which in fact resulted in the plane reaching its target without being shot down. Young man said, Vice President, the plane's 10 miles out. Um, Do the orders still stand? And the Vice President sort of whipped his head around and said, of course they do. It was thanks to the indignation for the 3,000 sailors killed at Pearl Harbor that President Roosevelt could finally enter a war the U.S. had been preparing for months in advance. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. It was thanks to the indignation. Use it as a you know rallying point to go ahead and gather everybody. And say we're going to war, baby. 
nation for the 3,000 victims of September 11, that President Bush could launch a war that had already been prepared in the smallest detail. CNN and Time Magazine have reported that on September 10th, 2001, a military plan to attack Afghanistan had been placed on Georgia. Oh, shit. September 10th, the CIA plans to attack Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan with heavy support for the Northern Alliance is put on Bush's desk for when he returns from Florida. And for some of you guys that are wondering, on September 11th, uh, George Bush was actually, if I'm not mistaken, in Sarasota, Florida at elementary school, um, you know, give, reading a children's book when he got the news. George Bush's desk to be signed by the president upon his return from Florida. May God grant us wisdom and may he watch over the United States of America. Then came the official commissions, which in both cases were tasked to find out whether there had been a conspiracy by the same authorities that were suspected of having participated in the conspiracy. Just three months after VJ Day, Senator Alvin Barkley of Kentucky convenes the Joint Congressional Committee on the investigation of the Pearl Harbor attack. The committee lays much of the blame on the commanders at Pearl Harbor and largely exonerates FDR and his top advisors. But its conclusions draw charges of cover-up and cronyism. Gross negligence becomes high treason when the motive is discovered or understood. In July 2004, the commission published its final report. Two and a half million pages of documents. We've interviewed over 1,200 individuals, including experts and officials past and present. However, the commission report failed to meet many of the family's expectations. And guys, anytime like a tragedy, like a national tragedy occurs, typically, you know, there's going to be an investigation, you know, done by the government and they're going to go ahead and do some kind of commission report. Right. Like, I mean, when JFK was killed, 9-11, uh, Pearl Harbor, anytime a, a major tragedy like this happens where it affects national security, there's going to be a huge investigation. They're going to put people on oath. They're going to be asking all types of questions and uh, a report is going to be done after the fact. So this is no different for the 9-11 commission report. That's where this report stems from. So um, a big part of this documentary is going to be debunking the official narrative that came from this 9-11 uh, report. Okay? Let's get into it. And concluded that 9-11 was merely a failure of imagination. Published in 2004, the 9-11 Commission Report has become the central focus of criticism by the 9-11 Truth Movement, a movement comprised of thousands of individuals and associations from all over the world, all connected through the Internet. The Commission's report is accused of having simply rubber-stamped the government's version of the events by ignoring all the evidence against it, while covering up its most conspicuous holes with a long series of omissions, distortions, and even... And here it is right here, guys. 9-11 Truth Movement, right? Quick little uh, thing on this. Uh, truth. The uh, 9-11 Truth Movement supports a conspiracy theory that disputes the general consensus in the September 11th attacks that a group of Al-Qaeda terrorists would hijack four airliners and crash them into the Pentagon and the original World Trade Center Twin Towers, which consequently collapsed. The primary focus is on misinformation that uh, adherents allege is not adequately explained in the official NASA Institute of Standards Technology, NIST. Guys, remember, th these guys are going to be a big part of this documentary, okay? such as the collapse of uh, World Trade 7, uh, the 7 World Trade Center. They suggest a cover-up and at least complicity by insiders. 
They analyze evidence from the attacks, discuss different theories about how the attacks happened, and call for a new investigation into the attacks. Some of the organizations assert that there is evidence that individuals within the United States government may have been either responsible for or knowingly complicit in the September 11th attacks. Motives suggested by the movement include the use of the attacks as a pretext to fight wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and to create opportunities to uh, curtail American civil liberties. Support for the movement is negligible from professionals in relevant fields such as civil and aerospace engineering. Okay, so that kind of gives you guys an idea of where we're going here. And you can't even find the website really when you Google it. Uh, Google got this shit shadow banned. <laughs> All right, let's get back into it. And this video actually was shadow banned as well, guys. Just so y'all know, you gotta have to type like the whole thing to be able to find it. Even plain falsehoods. Led by researcher David Ray Griffin, an international panel of 20 experts on 9-11 has compiled a list of the strongest evidence against the official version that has emerged to this day. This evidence is available to the public on their website in four different languages. Despite all the evidence that has emerged in the last decades, there are many who still reject the idea of a conspiracy at Pearl Harbor and prefer to reassert the much more simplistic explanation called the official version. There was no conspiracy. FDR did not know. Uh, Cordell Hull did not know. The American government did not know that the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. It was a what has uh, been called a failure of imagination. Despite all the evidence presented in the last 10 years by the 9-11 truth movement, there are many who openly support the official version by the government and dismiss such evidence as irrelevant. These people are known as debunkers, as their stated intent is to debunk the evidence presented by the 9-11 truth movement against the official version. The most authoritative debunker in Italy is Paolo Attivissimo, a member of an organization called CICAP, which has openly declared war on the so-called conspiracy theorists. Attivissimo has held numerous conferences on 9-11, in which he has covered all the most important aspects of the debate. The most prominent champion for the official version in France is Jerome Kirant, who also wrote a book called September 11 and the Conspiracy Theories. Kirant also participated in numerous conferences and television debates on 9-11 in his own country. But the flagship for the debunkers worldwide is certainly the American magazine Popular Mechanics. In 2006, they published a book called Debunking 9-11 Myths, in which the authors purport to have refuted all the major claims against the official version by the 9-11 truth movement. Jim Miggs is the editor of Popular Mechanics magazine. In 2005, he and a staff of reporters decided to take on the factual and scientific claims made by members of the 9-11 conspiracy movement. The results were first published in a magazine article, then more fully developed in a... So as you guys can see, man, you know, for several, oh, damn near over two decades, they've been going back and forth with this, um, you know, between conspiracy theorists and the bunkers back and forth with, was it an inside job? Was it not? Was it a pretext to get into war with Afghanistan and Iraq? Um, and they've just been going back and forth for a very long time. And I remember the first um, conspiracy video that came out on this was a documentary back in the day called Loose Change. Show my age with that one. So uh, I'll pull that one up here to show you guys, but um, let's keep going. Book titled Debunking 9-11 Myths, Why Conspiracy Theories Can't Stand Up to the Facts. I think what Popular Mechanics did with the 9-11 conspiracy theory was just about one of the best things ever done in the history of skepticism. That is exactly how it should be done. Here's the claim, here's the answer. Here's the claim, here's the answer. By the end, they got nothing to stand on. Boom, end of story. But is it really so? All right, so see, they're um, 
they're basically drawing the two the two uh you know catastrophic event catastrophic events uh, so you guys can see here here's loose change this came out uh a uh, series of films released between 2005 and 2009 that argue in favor of certain conspiracy theories related to the night of September 11th attacks. The films were written and directed by Dylan Avery and produced by Corey Rowe, Jason Bermas, and Matthew Brown. The original 2005 film was edited and re-released as Loose Change 2, second edition, uh, a third time for the second edition, recut 2006, and then subsequently edited for a fourth time for the HD remastered uh, edition 2017. Uh, Loose Change Final Cut deemed the third and final release of this documentary series was released on DVD and web stream format on November 11, 2017 which they're going to cover uh, if I'm not a lot of the, the points in this is also covered in this uh, documentary here. This is, this one is very extensive guys. Uh, the new Pearl Harbor. So, um, so basically they, what, so where are we right now? Basically guys, if you're just joining in number one, thank you. You could be anywhere else like the video. We went over the s similar parallels between Pearl Harbor, right? December 7, 1941 versus the September 11, 2001 attacks. Um, why it was done to you know stimulate war for maybe other reasons so uh let's get into it and they're going to start going into some of the arguments against the official narrative as to the attacks the debate on september 11 can okay so guys focus on this because this right here is going to outline okay the entire documentary okay and, and what i'll do is when we break this up into parts i'll start it at a certain section so that we have one section completely covered, okay? Um, but let's go ahead and uh, get into the main things. Roughly be divided into these areas of discussion. We have the four hijackings as the overarching event of the day, and we have the three different locations that were hit by the four airplanes. So bam, part one, four hijackings, the three locations, which they're gonna go into detail on each one. One of them hit the Pentagon, another crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The other two hit the Twin Towers in New York. The debate on the hijackings is divided in three parts. The first one focuses on the air defense and whether the failure to intercept the hijacked airplane was accidental or intentional. The second focuses on the hijackers and whether they were actually aboard the airplanes or just the usual patsies. The third part focuses on the aircraft themselves and whether the four airplanes used in the attacks were the same ones that took off from the airports that morning or were something that only resembled them from the outside. What initially raised suspicions on the true role of the military on September 11 is the fact that the U.S. air defense, which is arguably the most advanced and sophisticated in the world, was unable to intercept even one of the four hijacked airplanes in the course of over one and a half hours. I remember thinking, where on earth are the interceptors? I'm an old interceptor pilot, and it's absolutely unbelievable that hijacked airliners could fly around for an hour and 40 minutes without being intercepted. Uh, as a former Minister of National Defense, why did airplanes fly around for an hour and a half without interceptors being uh, scrambled? Take them uh, you know, with a quick reaction alert. They should have been in the air in five minutes or 10 minutes. If not, as a Minister of National Defense, uh, which I would want to say, why not? This astonishing failure to respond was remarked by Senator Mark Dayton in the post 9-11 congressional hearings. But what I find much more shocking and alarming were the repeated and catastrophic failures of the leaders in charge and the other people responsible to do their jobs, to follow established procedures, to follow direct orders from civilian and military commanders. The official justification for this failure is a series of and I like how they go back and forth. You guys are going to notice this this trend in in the uh, in the documentaries. What they'll do is 
They'll talk about what the debunkers explain as to why something may have not occurred a certain way or why it was strange. And then they'll go ahead and make an argument against it, which is, you know, this it's, it's great content, you know. So uh, let's get into it. Blunders, miscommunications, and mistakes that has come to be known as the incompetence theory. On that day, you saw a lot of well-meaning, confused people struggling to make sense of a, of a terrible situation. They didn't even know where the planes were. One argument for the incompetence theory is that the air defense was conceived to protect the U.S. from external threats, not internal ones. The fact is that our, our air defenses, uh, the whole NORAD system, was not at all geared towards protecting us from domestic aircraft. Quite the contrary. It was all set up to detect aircraft coming in from overseas. La difesa era predisposta per difendersi da attacchi provenienti dall'esterno. L'America era come se fosse una, un castello con un fossato, ma questi hanno usato una catapulta per entrare, saltando il fossato, si sono trovati all'interno, nel ventre mole dell'America, e l'hanno potuta ascoltare. What the debunkers forget to mention is that the responsibility for tracking internal hijacks has never fallen on the military to begin with. This has always been the duty of the Civil Air Traffic Controllers, the FAA, as explained by the Secretary of Defense himself. So the Department of Defense was oriented externally. Our radars were pointing out, not in, and the FAA was the one that, that then had the responsibility to say there's a hijack. Only then, explains author and researcher Nafiz Ahmed, is the military requested for assistance in scrambling their jets. Standard operating procedures dictate that as soon as a plane flies off course, the FAA will contact the plane and try to ask them what is going on. If there is a problem or if they cannot establish radio contact, then immediately the FAA will contact the Pentagon who will, within a matter of minutes, a maximum of 10 minutes normally, will scramble fighter jets to intercept the civilian plane and to analyze the situation and see what is going on. The FAA authority over the national airspace is clearly acknowledged in this exchange between the military from September 11. If you can, hand the fighters over directly to FAA so that they're still under FAA control. We're never going to take them. Just work with them, coordinate with them as best that you can with that. Take them to the area and let them handle that airspace. Another argument for the incompetence theory is that by turning off the transponders, the hijackers had made the airplanes very difficult to be tracked on radar. That can't be overstated. The fact that once the hijackers turned off the transponders, uh, you had air traffic control who were looking at something like 4,500 primary radar blips. They were trying to pick out the plane that they just lost. Non sapevano dove andare perché i terroristi hanno disattivato un dispositivo che si chiama transponder che localizza l'aeroplano. Spento quello, puff, sparisce il puntino. E dov'è? Non si sa dove è. This is not true. When the transponder is turned off, the controllers lose the information on the altitude, but they can still track the plane as a primary signal. The following example shows how long it took an air traffic controller to find American 11 on his screen after he was told the plane had been hijacked. Uh, good morning, uh, Washington. I got a situation here with American 11. We believe it's a uh, possible hijack. Okay, tell me more. Uh, we lost radio communications with him. Then we lost... Uh, his transponder, and right now the uh, aircraft is just west of Albany, going southbound. Okay, I see him. United 175 never turned the trans. So they were able to actually find him despite the fact that the transponder was off. So that's a very important distinction there. Transponder off. It just switched codes. United 175 is 50 miles northwest of New York City when its transponder code is suddenly changed. 
as I look up, I notice that United 175's code has changed. I just turned around and radioed the pilot. My exact words were, United 175, recycle transponders, walk. Hijacker Al Shahi obviously intended to turn off that uh, transponder, but because he just changed codes and didn't turn it off, he still left the controllers with a very clear indication of the normal return from an aircraft that was squawking, that's what we call it, with the altitude. According to the Secret Service, the plane that hit the Pentagon was tracked for at least 30 minutes before it reached Washington. Nelson Garabito was the Secret Service agent in charge of protecting the White House airspace. First thing I did is I picked up the phone to call my my contact, the FAA, he said, we have four planes outstanding. Uh, two have hit the towers and two are headed to Washington, D.C. One of them approximately 30 minutes out, one of them approximately 45 minutes out. The one 30 minutes out turned out to be the plane that hit the Pentagon. As the one nearest us got closer and closer, six minutes out, five minutes out. We knew it was sort of over the CIA and we thought, is that where it's going? Um, but it, it kept coming. United 93 was also being tracked after the hijacking. We were tracking United 93, and I was in conversation with the FBI agent, and he was relaying to me that we suspect that this aircraft has uh, now been taken over by hostile forces, described the sharp turn it made over uh, eastern Ohio, and now is heading back uh, along southwestern Pennsylvania. The airplane was being followed step by step, practically in real time. He's, uh, right now, he is west of Johnstown still. 12 miles. At some point, it even turned the transponder back on, showing not only its position, but also the altitude. It looks like he's still turning. Hey, his transponder just came back on and it was showing 8,000 feet, 200. 8,200 feet. 8,200 feet, and he's on the same code that he was before. Save for some moments of confusion, the four airplanes were being tracked by air traffic controllers all along. The real reason for the failure to intercept the four aircraft seems to have been the high number of military exercises that were being run by NORAD on September 11 out of their base in Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado. All right, this is where things get a little interesting, guys, so pay attention here. As Webster Tarpley noted in his book, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, staff exercises or command exercises are perfect for a rogue network, which is forced to conduct its operations using the same communications and computer systems used by other officers who are not necessarily party to the illegal operation. Interestingly enough, on the evening of September 10th, the security level for the NORAD computer system called Infocon had been dropped to normal, the lowest level. This made it easier for anyone to penetrate or compromise the computer. So basically, guys, what they're trying to say there is they're operating almost in the open, but there's plausible deniability for a majority of people, and there's a minority that might know what is actually going on here. You know, are they, you know, that's potentially what's they're, what they're inferring. Computer networks of the air defense system. On September 11, between four and 10 military exercises had been scheduled, some of them involving false hijacks of commercial airplanes. This unusual number of exercises had two major consequences. One, they moved a large number of fighters out to Canada and Alaska. Two, they created a major confusion in the system as soon as the real hijackings were reported. We have a hijacked aircraft headed towards New York, and we need you guys to, we need someone to scramble some F-16s or something up there to help us out. Is this, is this real world or exercise? No, this is not an exercise manifest. The process of authorization for scrambles was lengthy and complicated. Hey, uh, we just, I just talked to Otis here, and they said they needed a NEAS authorization. 
confusion and pressure kept mounting. I don't know where I'm scrambling these guys to. I need a direction, a destination. At times, communications were jammed. If you could do me a favor and have them call us, we cannot call out for some reason. Some in the military quickly realized the simulations were causing a problem. You know what? Get rid of this goddamn sim. Hey, turn the sim switches off. Get rid of that crap. I hope they cancel the exercise because this is ridiculous. But they were not canceled. Even after both towers in New York had been hit, when everyone knew America was under attack, the war games continued. You guys watching the news? Yeah. I wasn't sure. I've been watching it for about 10 minutes. They suspend the exercise? Uh, not at this time, no. Apparently, someone took advantage of the situation. While the plane headed for the Pentagon was quickly approaching from the west, an unknown source, which was never identified, reported that American 11 was headed towards the Capitol even though the plane had already crashed into the North Tower. I just had a report that American 11 is still in the air and it's heading towards Washington. That's wild. This attracted all the attention towards the so-called phantom plane. He's still airborne, he's still a hijack out there, but we can't get a position on him. The jets from Langley were prepared to intercept it. We have Langley on battle stations right now. Okay. Then they were scrambled straight for Washington. Scramble Langley, head towards the Washington area. But a different command post called Giant Killer sent the fighters out to the ocean. Uh, we want them in the Whiskey 386 area. This didn't sit well with the operations center. Freaking giant killer and their wisdom sent them out over the water when we scrambled them to Washington. By the time the plane headed for the Pentagon was circling the Capitol, it was too late for the Langley jets to intercept it. Even after the Pentagon was hit, the war games were not suspended. And again, while United 93 was being hijacked, another false alarm attracted the attention in the opposite direction. Uh, did you get the word? I got a Delta 89er south southeast of Toledo. Delta 89, that's a hijack. They think it's possible hijack. Fuck. South of Cleveland, we have a code on it now. Good. Pick it up. Find it. Fuck, another one. Major Nazipani turned to Toledo Air Force Base. I'm sorry to be so uh, brief and quick on this, but uh, there's another possible hijack about 50 miles east of Toledo, and you guys are the closest, and we need it somebody airborne. But instead of getting help, his authority was questioned. What authority is this coming from? Uh, what a, sir, what authority is this coming from? Uh, yeah. uh, the DO, is the best I can tell you. Nazipity vented his frustration to his superior, Colonel Marr. He's going to tell his commander, the commander's going to call you, because he doesn't believe the authority. Then they tried Duluth Air Force Base. What about yeah. Duluth? Okay, Duluth, you got no fighters. Nazipity went all the way to the Western Quadrant looking for help. This is Major Cheney, who is this? Hey, Kenny, this is Nasty. How you doing? Hey, doing all right. Hey, we're not doing so good right now. What I'd like to do, uh, possibly steal some aircraft out of Fargo from you guys. But here, too, there were no planes ready for scramble. We're going to get two aircraft up in about 15 minutes. They tried Syracuse, but 20 minutes was the best they could do. Syracuse, two airborne in 20 minutes. They tried Alpina but planes were just returning from their training. The Alpina thing isn't what we thought. There's four guys coming home from the range right now. They started looking for planes that were already up in the air for exercises. So, anybody in training, send them home. He's moving the oceans of Falcon, send them home. But those planes were spent at that point. They got no weapon here. They just went around a straight run up to the range. They blew all the road. By the time refueled and armed jets were finally scrambled, the Delta flight turned out to be another false alarm. He was a hijacked aircraft. God damn, bro. This is... This is an L. And I'm trying not to interrupt too much so that you guys can get the full picture here, so let's keep going. Not a 
hijacked aircraft. He's taking precautionary measures and he's landing at Cleveland Center. Only after the Delta flight had landed were the war games finally suspended. Hello, this is our Captain Taylor calling from China. Yes. Uh, what we need you to do right now is to terminate all exercise inputs coming into China Mountain. By then, also the fourth hijacked airplane had been turned into a pile of smoking rubble. Yet wow. General Mike. Holy! Yeah. Um, I didn't want to comment too much, much there, so that I don't, you know, mess up the flow of the information that was conveyed. But long story short, man, they bunch, they were doing a bunch of training on the worst day to be doing training, man. They weren't able to scramble in time. By the time they actually got their shit together, everything was already done. As you guys know, the planes crashed. You know, uh, you know, early, uh, early around late eight p.m. ish, early nine a.m. ish, when the tower when the planes were hitting the towers, et cetera. So by the time they got their shit together about an hour later, too late, man. So um, L definitely L there. Communication was not good. They are not at all. They should have had like backup, like for emergencies. Yeah, that was, yeah, they had more focus on training. Who was the highest military authority on September 11th has denied that the war games affected the military capacity of response. And the question was um, whether or not the, activities of the four war games going on on September 11th actually impaired our ability to, to respond to the attacks? Uh, the answer to the question is no, did not impair our response. General what? Myers forgot to mention oh, that on the morning of September 11, only four planes were armed and ready to intercept terrorists in the eastern region of the country. I've determined, of course, that with only four aircraft, we cannot defend the whole northeastern United States. That was the sensation of frustration of i don't have the forces available to do anything about this myers instead has even suggested that the war games helped the military response uh, general eberhardt who was in the commander of north american aerospace defense command as he testified in front of the 9-11 commission i believe he told him that it enhanced our ability to respond what that means is all the battle positions that uh, are normally not filled are indeed filled so it was an easy transition from an exercise into a real-world situation. Actually, Again, Myers forgot to mention that the transition took place only after all tragic events had ended around 11 o'clock. By 11 o'clock, the sense of alarm had spread across the country. Fighter jets actually patrolling the skies. It was a war zone. Our skies were turned into a war zone. Everywhere you turn, it was military jets and helicopters everywhere. George Bush returned to Washington on the evening of September 11. The president finally returns to Washington. An escort of six helicopters was waiting for him. 300 fighters were defending the skies. Had there been 300 fighters Wild. ready to defend the skies on the morning of September 11, would the terrorist attacks have turned out the same way? Probably not. That's a big... Uh, nope. This leads us straight... So now we're going to get into air defense uh, specific warnings. ...into a pivotal question. Was the choice of scheduling so many exercises in the same day just a misfortunate call, or was it intentional? To answer this question, we need to take a closer look at some of the warnings the U.S. had received in the months prior to September 11. By the spring of 2001, the system was blinking red, according to intelligence chiefs. The U.S. administration has always maintained that they knew the attacks were on their way, but they didn't have specific information on them. I knew there was another attack planning. I knew there was another attack coming. Uh, and, and the obvious question behind that is, well, why didn't you do something about it? We had no specific information. It was not specific as to time, nor place, nor manner of attack. And if you guys remember, you know, we talked about this uh, on the 
um, on the CIA episode that I did with you guys, like they kept telling that analyst who I showed you earlier when she was warning them about bin Laden, they didn't have anything like that somewhat specific. I mean, the day, time, etc. It's hard to predict these things. So that that's, you know, that of course that's going to be their excuse. No specific threat involving uh, really domestic operation or involving uh, what happened, obviously, uh, the city's uh, airliner and so forth. There uh, were uh, no warning signs that I'm aware of that would indicate this type of operation in the country. All these statements are false. A joint congressional inquiry on September 11 has revealed that in spring and summer of 2001, there had been a flood of warnings about possible terrorist attacks in the United States, some using airplanes as weapons. In fact, as reported by the New York Times, American aviation officials were warned as early as 1998 that Al-Qaeda could seek to hijack a commercial jet and slam it into a U.S. landmark. The London Times has revealed that the British MI6 warned the American intelligence services about a plot to hijack aircraft and crash them into buildings two years before the September 11 attacks. Russian President Vladimir Putin has said publicly... Even, Vla- even uh, Putin, who hates the United States, uh, had to give some info out. Publicly, ...that he ordered his intelligence agencies to alert the United States last summer in 2001 that suicide pilots were training for attacks on U.S. targets. German intelligence alerted the CIA in June 2001 that Middle Eastern terrorists were training for hijackings. The Sunday Herald has confirmed that Britain gave President Bush a categorical warning to expect multiple airline hijackings one month before the September 11 attacks. Then there was the infamous August 6th memo. President Bush was... And that was from the CIA, which we talked about earlier, guys. You know, the CIA gave, and I showed you guys this earlier, many warnings, man. Watch that episode back. I go into that a little bit more detail, but they, the CIA gave them a lot of warnings too. So you got foreign governments, you got the CIA themselves telling, yo, Bin Laden is serious about attack. Bin Laden is serious about attack. Hijackings are coming. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And they didn't take action, man. This is a big fucking L. Told in August that Osama Bin Laden might be planning an attack involving the hijacking of U.S. aircraft. It's titled... Bin Laden determined to strike in U.S. CIA report from that girl that I showed you guys. Again, cover this. Go watch that episode in detail, man. Break this all down if you guys want to learn more about how, uh, you know, how the CIA notified the White House and the higher-ups several times. The two-page memo states, FBI information indicates patterns of suspicious activity in this country. CIA information, actually, but yeah, let's keep going consistent with preparations for hijackings or other types of attacks. Maybe it's no coincidence that the FBI advised their own boss to stop flying commercial airliners as early as six weeks before 9-11. Why is the Attorney of the United States doing all his air travel by specially chartered jet? The Justice Department cited what it called a threat assessment by the FBI and said Ashcroft has been advised to travel only by private jet for the remainder of his term. At this point, we can pose the following question. Knowing that the attacks were imminent, knowing that they might involve hijacked airliners, but not knowing where and when they could happen, would have been a good reason to beef up the defense and keep even more jets than usual on alert all across the country. Why instead schedule so many exercises in one day while leaving only four jets on alert to defend the very sector of the country that was most... One thing I do like about this documentary is they ask some pretty good questions uh, whenever there's intel gaps. ...was likely to be attacked. 
To bring even more confusion into the situation was a series of last-minute replacements and unexplained absences within the chain of command. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was General... This is pretty interesting as well. And just so you guys know how the government operates, the government operates on a chain of command. And what that basically means is, um, you know, you got lower-level people, then you go up in supervisors, then it gets into the brass. And pretty much, you know, information flows upward. You got to go through your chain of command. So, like, when I was an agent, for example, I would go to my direct supervisor. If I had an issue, he would elevate it, and then it would keep going up. You can't jump the chain of command. That's a big issue. So if I went to, like, my assistant special agent in charge instead of my supervisor, right, without him being in the know, that could be a problem. You always got to deal with the chain of command so that uh, – um, so you guys kind of understand where about to go here. You know, I mean, this works obviously in the private sector as well. It's the same way. Um, but in the government, it's even more pronounced, especially when it comes to the military. Chain of command is very big. Henry Shelton, but on September 11, he was absent, and his post was taken by his deputy, General Richard B. Myers. The FAA's national operations manager was Ben Sliney. On the morning of September 11, Sliney had been on that job for less than one day. The protocols required for Mr. Sliney to speak directly with the hijack coordinator, Lieutenant General Mike Canavan. But Canavan on that day was in Puerto Rico, and apparently he had forgotten to designate a replacement. What? In regards to the ensuing confusion, Mr. Sliney has stated, that's incredible. There is a and that's a that's a L, guys. Anytime you're like not available for you have to always get something called an acting, okay? So when I was um an agent, right, for example. And you had the group supervisor. Well, you needed someone there to like kind of be the supervisor in case the main supervisor wasn't there. So it would be called I'm the acting GS. And sometimes it would act for a day. Sometimes it would act for months on end before they get the, the you know, the, the full time position and they actually get get it officially. So whenever you're not there and you have a position of authority or supervision, you're responsible for, for finding someone to be the acting. OK, so in this case, the fact that he didn't have someone acting in his capacity while he was gone is uh, very stupid and questionable, especially someone that's higher ranking like that. Only one person. There must be someone designated or someone who will assume the responsibility of issuing an order. At the head of the National Command Center was General Montague Winfield. But on the evening of September 10th, Winfield instructed Captain Charles Leidig to take his place on the following morning. Leidig had been just recently certified for that post and was also on his first day on the job. At the operation command of NEADS was Colonel Marr. When Marr called his superior, General Arnold, to get authorization to scramble the jets from Otis, he was told that Arnold was in a meeting where he could not be reached by telephone. Marr had to physically send a messenger looking for him. Precious minutes were lost as Marr waited for Arnold to return his call. And when the fighters were finally scrambled, it was too late for them to intercept American 11. The top commander in charge of NORAD was General Ralph Eberhard, who was stationed at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado. Eberhard told the 9-11 Commission that he was made aware of the first hijacking practically at the same time American 11 slammed into the North Tower. He then went to his office and saw the CNN broadcast of the World Trade Center explosion. After the second impact, writes the Commission, it was obvious to Eberhard that there was an ongoing and coordinated terrorist attack. At that point, Eberhard called General Myers to update him on the situation. But even though both generals knew the country was being attacked by hijacked airplanes, neither of them suggested suspending the war games and recalling all the fighters available as soon as possible. Oh, and furthermore, oh, instead of getting on the phone and taking control of the situation, in the most crucial moment of the day, General Eberhard chose to get in his car and drive from the Peterson base to Cheyenne Mountain. 
The 30-minute drive put him completely out of the loop since Eberhard couldn't receive telephone calls, wrote the Denver Post, as senior officials weighed how to respond. General Eberhardt was also the person responsible for lowering the security level of the defense computer system on the evening of September 10th. Aw, shit. Oh, shit! Oh, shit! And then there was Donald Rumsfeld. As stated by the 9-11 Commission, procedures called for the hijack coordinator on duty to contact the National Military Command Center and to ask for a military escort aircraft to follow the flight. The NMCC would then seek approval from the Office of the Secretary of Defense to provide military assistance. If approval was given, the order would be transmitted down NORAD's chain of command. But this kind of procedure becomes difficult to follow when the hijack coordinator See, now you guys can see the whole chain of command here and how it's supposed to go. Coordinator is in Puerto Rico. No one knows who the replacement is. The military command is in the hands of a total rookie, and the Secretary of Defense is nowhere to be found. Donald Rumsfeld told CNN... Not to mention that guy from the FAA, it was like his first day on the job. <laughs> so literally L all around, man. ...that he was informed of the Trade Center being hit some 15 minutes before the Pentagon was hit. This places the episode around 9.22 in the morning. And after the Pentagon was hit, rather than go to the command center and take charge of the situation, the Secretary of Defense chose to lend a helping hand on the Pentagon's lawn. It's almost as if Rumsfeld didn't feel the need to be informed about what was happening to his country under attack. The Secretary of Defense is outside the burning building, while inside the Pentagon. For 30 minutes, we couldn't find him. Uh, and just as we began to worry, he walked into the door of the National Military Command Center. By the time Rumsfeld walked into that door, all major events had ended. In fact, Rumsfeld told Holy man. the 9-11 Commission that once again, late to the situation, just like the people before that finally finished scrambling the, the jets, the fighter jets at 10 a.m. when everything, all the damages had been done. He was just gaining situational awareness when he spoke with the vice president at 1039. That's more than one and a half hours after the whole world knew that America was under attack. Why would so many rookies be placed in key positions? And why would so many top officials be either absent or unavailable on a day when so many exercises were scheduled is a question that remains to be answered. Question. After having realized that the country was being attacked by hijacked airplanes at 9.03, why didn't Eberhard immediately suspend all the war games and recall all the available jets to their bases? Why didn't Myers order him to do so after having been briefed by Eberhard on the ongoing attack? And why hasn't the 9-11 Commission ever asked either general these most fundamental questions? The final argument... Good questions argument against the incompetence theory is offered by researcher Nafiz Ahmed. If we try to explain it by using the incompetence theory, it doesn't make sense. For example, if, if it was incompetence, we would expect that there would have been a normal inquiry into what went wrong. We would have expected that there would be some kind of reprimands, that certain officials would be um, downgraded or they would lose their jobs or something would have happened to correct the situation. But we find that there has been no such reprimands at all. Not only that didn't happen, but the opposite took place. After 9-11, most of the high-ranking people involved in this catastrophic failure were either confirmed to their posts or promoted to higher levels. Condoleezza I do want to say this real fast. It's common in the government to reward incompetence, guys. <laughs> like, I can't tell you how many agents I know that didn't do shit in their career, smoke and mirrors, didn't make no cases, didn't arrest nobody, didn't have no stats, didn't seize nothing. 
and still were able to make supervisor or get promoted off of kissing ass, you know, brown nose and doing all this stupid shit, anything but actually doing work. When it comes to government, a lot of times, man, it's not what you know, guys. It's who you know. And that's with any type of endeavor and or profession. Now, am I saying that all these guys brown, brown knows their way to getting promoted? No, but I do want to let you all know that um, the government, a lot of the times, is not based on meritocracy. It's based on how long have you been in and who do you know? Seniority is the main situ- main thing when it comes to government work, guys, which kind of sucks. But that is why so many government employees are known for being fucking lazy and useless. I'll be honest with you all. Okay, coming from a former government employee himself, when I would do my case and everything, sometimes it was pulling teeth to rally the troops to go ahead and, you know, get excited about doing late night surveillance. Hell, right now, it's 440 in the morning. I haven't slept yet. I'm half asleep. But, hey, we got to make shit happen, baby. Fuck your feelings. But in the government, it's like, oh, it's 4 it's four p.m. I'm out. It's 3 p.m. I'm out. You know, they don't want to stay till 5. So um, not giving these guys an out, but it's not uncommon for useless people to get promoted in the government, guys. It's just the way it is. Rice, who had misrepresented the information the government had on the attacks in a sworn testimony, kept her post as national security advisor and went on to become secretary of state in the following Bush administration. General Eberhard, the NORAD commander who didn't think of recalling the war games as soon as he knew his country was under attack, was chosen to lead the newly created U.S. Northern Command, which the Department of Defense has termed the nation's premier military homeland defense organization. Donald Rumsfeld, who acted more like an estranged passerby than the Secretary of Defense, kept his post at the Pentagon and began enjoying the largest increase in military spending after the Vietnam War. Because obviously we had, you know, we had, we were churning and burning going after Iraq. Richard B. Myers, despite the total breakdown under his leadership, was promoted to chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the highest military post in the country. On September 13, confirmation hearings were held for General Myers, as if nothing ever happened, while people were still being pulled alive from the rubble at Ground Zero. While at the Pentagon, the military appeared completely aloof from the events unfolding. At the White House, the coordination activities seemed to be concentrating under the firm authority of Vice President Cheney. In fact, the so-called NORAD tapes have revealed that the White House had ground-to-air missiles of their own. Hello there, Washington Approach. Make sure that the center does not have anything above our airspace also. The Secret Service is going to start shooting at anything in the air. I just got a call from Washington. They said that uh, if there's anything above their airspace, the Secret Service is going to uh, free fire. This exchange, which took place around 10 a.m., sheds a whole new light on one of the most controversial issues of 9-11. The sworn testimony by Secretary of Transportation Norman Mineta to the 9-11 Commission on May 2003. Uh, This is very interesting stuff right here, guys. Uh, Listen up. Mineta was being questioned about the events that took place in the PIOC, the underground bunker in the White House, from where Dick Cheney took charge of the situation after convincing President Bush to stay away from Washington for safety reasons. Yeah, guys, anytime something crazy is going down, you know, they go into an underground bunker where they, you know, got classified phones are able to, you know, still run the country while we're under attack. And, uh, you know, in Air Force One, a.k.a. what the president, you know, is in the, the plane when he's coming back from Florida, they have Air Force One just constantly, you know, flying around in the air until they can get things stabilized. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you you need the president alive. You know, we got to create um <clears throat> We're gonna, we got to prioritize the, the safety of the president because if he goes down, then people are going to start losing faith and going wild. So it's very important to maintain composure and keep some semblance of control uh, in times of peril. 
So uh, in any type of crisis, they're going to the bunker, start making decisions. Presence in Air Force One, flying around, making calls, making decisions, et cetera, because they got to keep him safe, of course. So the vice president, you know, that's their job, kind of step in and help out. To fully understand the implications of this case, two things must be kept in mind. One is that according to the official version, Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon at 937, while Flight United 93 crashed in Pennsylvania at 1003. It's on this 26-minute window that hinges the whole credibility of the vice president on his true role in the September 11 attacks. The second thing to keep in mind is that right, the, this is a very important part here, guys. So that's 26 minutes. Keep that in mind. The order to shoot down civilian airliners came from the president through the vice president only after the Pentagon had been hit. When the third plane hit the Pentagon, the magnitude of the attacks grew dramatically. We didn't know if there were other planes that had been hijacked. So the first decision I made on Air Force One was to give our Air Force orders to shoot down commercial aircraft did, that did not respond. This means that any order given before the Pentagon was hit could not have been a shoot-down order. However, as Chairman Hamilton was inquiring about the shoot-down order, something unexpected emerged from Mineta on the plane that hit the Pentagon. And uh, we had that order given, I think it was by the president, that uh, authorized uh, the shooting down of commercial aircraft that were suspected to be controlled by terrorists. Um, were you there when that order was given? No, I, I was not. I was made aware of it uh, during the time that the airplane coming in to the Pentagon, uh, there was a young man who would come in and say to the vice president, the, the plane is 50 miles out, the plane is 30 miles out, and when it got down to the plane is 10 miles out, um, the young man also said to the vice president, do the orders still stand? And uh, the vice president turned and whipped his neck around and said, of course the orders still stand. Have you heard anything to the contrary? Well, at the time I didn't know what all that meant. And- um, The flight you're referring to is the- the flight like they came into the Pentagon. Pentagon. Yeah. Mineta's deposition posed a major problem. Since the shoot-down order was given only after the Pentagon was hit, Cheney's order sounded very much like one not to shoot down the plane. Hamilton immediately suggested that what Mineta had witnessed was also a shoot-down order. Let me see if I understand. that The plane that was headed toward the Pentagon and was uh, some miles away, there, there was an order to shoot that plane down. Well, I don't know that specifically. Commissioner Romer picked up where Hamilton left off. You said, uh, if I understood you correctly, that you were not in the room when the decision was made to what you inferred was a decision made to attempt to shoot down Flight 77 before it crashed into the Pentagon. Is that correct? I didn't know about the shooting, the order to shoot down. Commissioner Romer then tried to suggest a different solution. Was there another line of communication between the vice president and you said you saw Mr. Richard Clark on your way in? Was Clark running an operations center as well uh, on that day? Dick uh, was in the situation room. 
So there was a Situation Room making decisions about what was going to happen on well, shutdowns as well making, as the PIOC? I don't believe they were making any decisions. I think they were more information gathering from uh, various agencies. Could it have been in the Situation Room where somebody in the Situation Room recommended the shoot down and the Vice President agreed to that? Commissioner Romer, I would assume that a decision of that nature would have been, would have had to be made at a much higher level than the people who were in the Situation Room. Unable to resolve. Hot damn. Ho ho. Oh shit, oh shit. Of the discrepancy, the 9-11 Commission took a series of dramatic steps. Firstly, they simply excluded Mineta's testimony from the final report. In the 560 pages of the report, Norman Mineta is mentioned only once in an unrelated circumstance. His presence in the PIOC is never even acknowledged, and the video segment you have just seen has been removed from the Commission's official website, and it's no longer available. Secondly, the 9-11 Commission moved Dick Cheney's arrival in the PIOC to after the Pentagon had been hit. From the final report, we read, The Vice President entered the underground tunnel leading to the shelter at 9.37, which is the same time the Pentagon was hit. The Commission stated that Dick Cheney remained in the tunnel for more than 20 minutes trying to complete a call to the President and that he only entered the PIOC at 9.58. Why would the vice president spend more than 20 minutes in a tunnel trying to make a phone call when the PIOC is fully equipped with all kinds of telephones has never been explained. As a third, he didn't want other people to hear the conversation, which, you know, definitely if that's what's going on here. Step. The commission moved the exchange with the young man to after 10 o'clock and rewrote it in order to reconcile it with the official version. From the final report, we read at some time between 1010 and 1015, a military aide told the vice president and others that the aircraft was 80 miles out. Vice President Cheney was asked for authority to engage the aircraft. The military aide returned a few minutes later and said the aircraft was 60 miles out. He again asked for authorization to engage. The vice president again said yes. In summary, the window of time Mineta described as during the time of the plane coming into the Pentagon had become 1010 to 1015 in the commission report. The 50 miles out reference by Mineta had become 80 and 60 miles out in the report. The 30 miles out and 10 miles out mentions by Mineta were removed, and the unspecified order by Dick Cheney to the young man had become a straightforward shoot-down order. And now that the episode had been moved to after 10 o'clock, the commission could maintain that the exchange Mineta had witnessed was referring to Flight 93 when the shoot-down order was already in place, and not to the flight that hit the Pentagon. There was only one problem with this. All right. Uh, also, pay attention to this part, guys. I'm, as you can see, I'm not trying to interrupt so that you guys can kind of go ahead and get the full picture. So pay attention to this part as well, guys. ...version of the events. Norman Mineta had to be terribly confused in his recollections, as he could not have been with the vice president in the PIOC at the time the Pentagon was hit. To support this theory, the debunkers point at a statement by Mineta, who said he arrived at the White House while it was being evacuated. Since the official order of the evacuation came at 9.45, contend the debunkers, Mineta could not have been with the vice president in the PIOC at the time the Pentagon was hit. But in the same deposition, Mineta also stated that he arrived at the PIOC at about 9.20 a.m. 
So it's presumable that he was referring to the people that had already started leaving the White House before the official order of evacuation was given. In fact, at 9.52, CNN reported that a slow evacuation of the White House had started some 30 minutes earlier, much before the official order was given. Furthermore, a Secret oh, Service timeline oh, compiled by the 9-11 Commission staff shows that the 30 miles out and 10 miles out calls came at 9.31 and 9.34, respectively. Oh, Lord! Oh, shit! Oh, shit! Holy! Let's keep going. This clearly places the exchange Mineta witnessed before 9.37. At the same time, the main problem with placing Cheney's removal from his office at 9.37 is Dick Cheney himself. On September 16, five days after the events, Cheney stated on Meet the Press that he was taken into the bunker shortly after the second tower was hit, which happened at 9.03. So we turned on the television and watched for a few minutes and then actually saw the second plane hit uh, the World Trade Center. I talked with the president while I was uh, there over the next several minutes watching developments on the television and as we started to get organized to, uh, to figure out what to do, my uh, Secret Service agents came in and uh, they uh, hoisted me up and moved me very rapidly down the hallway. Down some. Yeah, there's no option when the Secret Service comes in and you're their protectee. They're just moving you. They don't give a fuck with you. Oh, no, no, I'm not going nowhere. Okay, sir. Uh, Stupid. We're taking you somewhere. Sorry. <laughs> Your life is entrusted to us. Stairs through some doors and down some more stairs into an underground facility. And uh, they did that because uh, they'd received a report that an airplane was headed for the White House. There are also several highly credible testimonies that placed Dick Cheney's removal from his office shortly after 9.03. ABC News quoted White House photographer David Borer saying that, just after 9 a.m., Vice President Dick Cheney was in his West Wing office when two or three agents came in and told him, sir, you have to come with us. Agents came inside the office and said, uh, sir, you have to come with us. The New York Times reported the same story. At 9.03 a.m., as Vice President Cheney was staring at the TV screen, the second hijacked airliner exploded against the Twin Towers. At that moment, the Secret Service grabbed him and hurried him down to Piak. Richard Clark, in his book Against All Enemies, wrote that soon after the second tower was hit, Cheney began to gather up his papers. As I left, I counted eight Secret Service agents ready to move to the Piak. President Bush's secretary, Ashley Estes, stated, As the second plane hit, it didn't really click exactly what happened. Then I heard a noise, like a body bumping a door. I looked out into a hallway and saw the vice president with the Secret Service. They had kind of lifted him up and were running with him. At that point, it definitely registered what it was. Former Undersecretary of Defense Eric Edelman testified, I was already down in the Piak with the Vice President when we got word there had been an explosion at the Pentagon. And even after 10 years, Dick Cheney has not changed his story one bit. As we watched, we saw the second plane strike, and uh, then we knew it was, was a terrorist attack. Then uh, my Secret Service agent, lead agent, came bursting through the door of my office and uh, said, sir, we have to leave now. While all these testimonies clearly placed Dick Cheney in the Piak by the time the Pentagon was hit, the 9-11 Commission has admitted that the 9.37 entry time by Dick Cheney in the tunnel was based on alarm data, which is no longer retrievable. And, most important of all, Mineta himself recalls being with the Vice President by the time the Pentagon was hit. So then someone came in and said, uh, uh, Mr. Vice President, the, uh, there's been an explosion at the at the uh, Pentagon. In the course of time, Secretary Mineta has never changed his story, repeatedly confirming both the location and the timing of the event. 
Then all of a sudden, as I was talking to him, he said, uh, oh, I lost the uh, bogey, lost the target. I said, well, where is it? He said, well, somewhere between Roslyn and uh, National Airport. And about that time, someone broke into the conversation. He said, Mr. Secretary, we just had a confirmation from an Arlington County police officer saying that he saw a, an American Airlines plane go into the Pentagon. That the exchange Mineta witness was referring to the plane that hit the Pentagon should be beyond doubt at this point. But we still don't know what was the order given by Dick Cheney to the young military, whose name turned out to be Douglas Cochran. In 2000... Oh, they identified him. This is interesting right here, guys. Pay attention to this as well. This is a very interesting point here. In 2010, some researchers tracked down Mr. Cochran and asked him to clarify what the orders by Dick Cheney were. Mr. Cochran confirmed being the person involved in the exchange, but declined to elaborate. He simply stated that everything that happened on that day has been well documented. The 9-11 Commission report is the authoritative narrative on the events of 9-11. I have nothing to add. Smart guy. He don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> He's like, oh, you want to give a statement? Nope. In fact, it turns out that in 2004, the 9-11 Commission did interview Douglas Cochran, military aide to the vice president, on the inbound aircraft and on the shoot-down language used. But his interview has been withdrawn from public access, and to this day, it remains classified. Oh, shit. While we wait for that document to be declassified, we can piece together the information we already have. One. The sky over Washington is Class Bravo, restricted airspace. It's called Prohibited Area 56. In order to enter it, an airplane must have clearance from air traffic controllers, active two-way radio communications, and its transponder must be on. Otherwise, it's to be considered hostile and it could be shot down. Two, as explained by former Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger, in a time of crisis, the Washington airspace goes into an actual lockdown. You would do what, what is being done, and that is closing off the entire airspace so that, you, in, in effect, the whole Washington area is a no-fly zone so that any planes that are, can't identify themselves and get into that uh, are uh, to be shot down. Three, the White House had ground-to-air missiles of their own. Hello there, Washington Approach. Right. Make sure that... I did not know that, actually, guys. That's a very interesting point. And, it's, and the and more interesting point is that the Secret Service mans it. So uh, that, that's that's actually very interesting. That the center does not have anything above our airspace also the secret service is going to start shooting but it makes perfect sense you know that they would have ground to air missiles at the of course for the white house at anything in the air four as the unknown airplane was approaching the protected airspace it had no clearance from air traffic controllers no radio communications active and the transponder was off he said we're tracking an airplane coming in but the transponder has been turned off so we don't have any identification on the airplane. We know it's coming in fast. A representation of the FAA radar scope based on information obtained by 2020 shows the plane headed straight for what is known as P-56, prohibited airspace 56, which covers the White House and the Capitol at a speed of about 500 miles an hour with no radio contact whatsoever. It would be unprecedented for a commercial plane to come screaming through your airspace at that kind of speed, unidentified, without making some type of communication. This made it a perfect candidate for a shootdown, especially after two towers in New York had already been hit by an airplane. Five, 
The Secret Service had known about the incoming airplane for the last 30 minutes, so it's presumable they would have been ready to shoot it down if it became necessary. One of them approximately 30 minutes out, one of them approximately 45 minutes out. So we knew we had some, some time, but little time. Our supervisor picked up our line to the White House and started relaying to them the information. We have an unidentified, very fast-moving aircraft inbound toward your vicinity. Despite all this, no one moved a finger as the unknown threat kept rushing towards the Capitol. Someone came in and said to the vice president, uh, there's a plane out about 50 miles out. As the one nearest us got closer and closer, six minutes out, five minutes out. The same person said to the vice president, uh, Mr. Vice President, there's a plane 30 miles out. The Washington controllers came up on the speakerphone. They started counting down 10 miles from White House. Young man said, Vice President, the plane's 10 miles out. Um, do the orders still stand? And the vice president sort of whipped his head around and said, of course they do. Nine miles from the White House. Eight miles from the White House. Seven miles left. And it went six, five, four. All the way down to one mile from the White House. But no missile was fired. Undisturbed, the plane turned around and went on to strike the Pentagon. Causing the de oh, shit. death of at least 125 people between military and civilians on the ground. Question. The Secret Service knew about the incoming plane for the last 30 minutes, was following it on radar, had the means to shoot it down, and should have done so in order to protect the Capitol. But they didn't. Why? In regards to the exchange between Cheney and the young man, can you suggest anything different from an order not to shoot down the plane? As it was a Well, I will say this. You know, they're scared because shooting down a plane you need high up you know uh approval to do that man because remember guys this is a civilian plane now does that excuse that the secret service didn't do it no but i could see why no one wants to make that kind of call you know you're, you're calling up at the highest level saying hey can we shoot down this plane do we got authorization no one wants to make a tough decision like that approaching washington's protected airspace all right so now we're going to get into the the hijackers guys this is part two of um, the conspiracy theory. So this is some interesting stuff as well. Um, and they're going to talk about, you know, flight skills, CCTV, and some other things as well that uh, raise some suspicion. So uh, let's get into it. While the military defense leaves many unanswered questions, even more doubts arise when taking a closer look at the 19 alleged terrorists. The first problem is that apparently these guys could barely fly at all. While they are known to have taken some flight lessons with small single-engine airplanes, none of them had ever flown a jet before in their life, let alone a large commercial airliner, which is obviously a league of its own. Adam Shaw is an acrobatic pilot and a flight instructor with 6,000 hours of experience, half of which spent flying upside down. For people who are really piss-poor student pilots, to be able to get in the cockpit of uh, big jets and fly them as accurately as they were flown at close to max speed and be able to hit the trade towers. The idea that someone could make the transition from a small single engine plane traveling at 100 miles an hour to a commercial airliner traveling at 500 miles an hour without a long, exhaustive training is very hard to believe. People don't realize that to hand fly an airliner at those speeds is extremely difficult. 
and particularly if you're a novice, because a novice that's learned in little airplanes, they over-control everything. To justify this apparently impossible transition, the debunkers maintained that the terrorist had spent some time in flight simulators, and that the equipment they encountered in the Boeing cockpits on September 11 was similar to the simulators they had trained on. But this is false. For example, the only simulator Hani Hanjur is known to have ever trained in is the Boeing 737, an airplane designed in the 70s, with a totally different cockpit from the 757 he is alleged to have hijacked on September 11. If anything, his training would have confused him, not helped him in any way. Another argument by the debunkers is that all the hijackers really had to do once in the cockpits was to set the automatic pilot in order to reach their targets. But this is hardly what happened on September 11. Dave Bottiglia is the air traffic controller who followed the hijacking of United 175. Now as I'm watching, United 175 makes a hard left-hand turn and starts climbing. Not only did he make a sharp turn, but he also climbed 3,000 feet in a matter of approximately one minute, which is a very fast rate of climb. This is something that we have never seen before. After the sudden ascent, the plane started a breathtaking descent toward the ground. We were counting down the altitudes, and they were descending right at the end at 10,000 feet per minute. That is absolutely unheard of for a commercial jet. This is certainly not the way the automatic pilot would have taken you to Kennedy Airport. It is unbelievable for the passengers. Yeah, you would have fucking... <laughs> Lost your shit if the pilot drove uh, drove the plane in that manner. <laughs> to withstand that type of force as they're descending, they're actually nosing the airplane down and doing it what I would call a power dive. At 9:01 a.m., United 175 is hurtling at more than 400 miles per hour toward the Statue of Liberty and New York Harbor. One of the controllers started counting out the altitudes, and he says. My God, he's going down at 8,000 feet a minute. Now it's 10,000 feet a minute. And he counted off eight, six, four, and he says, my God, he's in the ground on the next step. But he was not. According to the official version, Marwan Al-Sheikhi, a 23-year-old who has never flown a jet before in his life, levels the course, visually identifies the target, and performs a spectacular banking maneuver that brings the 767 to hit the South Tower under the world's astonished eyes. Now I'm gonna play this part out because I don't want to interrupt guys, and then I'll give you my thoughts on this situation um, after. So I'll, I'll play this whole hijacker part out um, as far as uh, you know their ability to fly, the skills that were used to conduct these attacks, and the, you know the... <laughs> Aerobat, uh, 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 God damn it! What's the term I'm trying to use here? Um, I'll just say the flight gymnastics that they were able to pull off on this attack. Question: Marwan El Sheikhi had never flown a jet before in his life, let alone a huge airliner. How was he able to perform ascents of 3,000 feet per minute and plunges of 10,000 feet per minute while keeping full control of the plane? And why would he want to take such unnecessary risks, including collisions with other airliners, instead of flying safely with the autopilot towards the intended target? 
Ziad Jarrah, the alleged hijacker of Flight 93, wasn't known for his piloting skills either. As reported by the 9-11 Commission in July 2001, he had asked to fly the Hudson Corridor near Manhattan with a small private plane. But because Hortman Flight School deemed Jarrah unfit to fly solo, he could fly this route only accompanied by an instructor. Yet we are asked to believe that only two months later, the same person was able to fully control a 100-ton airliner and perform some extreme descending maneuvers observed by Cleveland's air traffic controllers. I see this plane climbed up from his assigned altitude to 35, of 35,000 feet to 41,000 feet, turned around and aimed right back at where we were and descended rapidly. And when a plane descends too fast, the computer can't keep up with it. Ziad Jarrah had never flown a jet before in his life, let alone a large airliner. And even his experience with small airplanes was rather poor. How could he perform a descent so fast that the computer can't keep up with it while maintaining full control of the plane? And why would he need to take such an unnecessary risk, including collisions with other airplanes, instead of safely flying with the autopilot towards the intended target? But the feat of the century must be awarded to Hani Hanjour, a hopeless amateur who is alleged to have been at the controls of American 77. As he finally reached Washington and had the Pentagon in sight, Hani Hanjour did not make the easy choice and just plunge the plane onto the roofs of the building. He instead disconnected the autopilot and performed a hand-flown, high-speed descending maneuver of 330 degrees that brought him to lose sight of the target again while forcing him to a much more difficult approach close to the ground. Seen from above, the Pentagon offers some 30 acres of unobstructed target. Hitting it anywhere on the roofs would have caused a major devastation and possibly thousands of casualties. Coming in from the side instead, the approach is filled with obstacles and the target is reduced to a tiny strip of cement coming at you at 500 miles an hour. The debunk so this is an interesting point that, you know, if you're really trying to get the most damage, why would you hit it from the side? So that is a good point there. Why? It doesn't make sense. Truckers, however, seem to have a good explanation for this apparently illogical maneuver. Normalmente l'aereo dovrebbe scendere in picchiata. Allora, si chiede a un pilota e il pilota ti dice subito: guarda che quella è la manovra più difficile, la fa un pilota esperto. Un pilota di scarsa competenza usa l'aereo come se fosse un camion bomba, ossia vola orizzontalmente, vola basso centro all'edificio. This very question has already been posed to professional pilots. But the answer was not what Attivissimo claims. Se lei dovesse simulare il volo di uno che vuole colpire il pentagono, esatto, la sicuro lo colpirei sicuramente da questa parte qui. Cioè, per essere sicuro arriverebbe dall'alto così. Arrivano qui perché o si colpiscono questi edifici, diciamo i primi che vengono, oppure si colpiscono gli edifici che sono subito dopo e quindi si crea comunque un elevato danno. Flying a jet near the ground instead does require some major skills even for the most seasoned pilot. Lei che ha tante ore di esperienza di volo, riuscirebbe a portare questo aereo negli ultimi 500 metri, da qui a qui, a 850 km all'ora? E dovrei metterci veramente tanto tanto impegno. La, la prima difficoltà sarebbe quella eh, di volare attaccato a terra. E, eh, lo so per esperienza diretta, avendo fatto volo militare a bassa quota. E, eh, il terreno corre via. Certo, corre a una velocità, velocità incredibile. Quindi credo che chi ha fatto eh, questa attività eh, possa capire cosa vuol dire stare a 10 metri da terra, 5 metri da terra con un aeroplano che pesa 110-120 tonnellate lanciato a 900 km all'ora. Basta toccare la cosa e schizza via. Come si fa a pilotare un aereo a 530 miglia all'ora a rasa terra? È possibile? Beh, come diceva il collega, è estremamente difficile. 
è complesso anche perché un piccolissimo intervento sul piano verticale fa salire o scendere l'aeroplano, per cui anche un pilota abbastanza allenato avrebbe delle grosse difficoltà. The debunkers insist that the maneuver would have been doable even by an amateur like Hani Hanjour. La manovra è tutt'altro che acrobatica, è una virata molto ampia. Il y a des journalistes aux Pays-Bas qui ont dit ben on va voir, on va faire le test. To prove their point, the debunkers refer to a documentary by Dutch television in which the Pentagon attack is replicated in a flight simulator. Thank you. Thank you. Waarschuwt het vliegtuig nu voor? But this simulation doesn't seem very accurate. First of all, the approach is made from a much higher angle, while the real plane came in so low that it clipped some of the light poles as it was flying at ground level. Secondly, the documentary doesn't offer precise indications on the speeds used during the simulation. In a more accurate simulation, done with a pilot with an experience similar to Hani Hanjour, the results were quite different. Okay, you're 311 knots. You want to go all the way around? Yeah, because I got to get, get back towards the city here. You can feel it right now. You feel yeah. the G-forces? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right, go for it. Go towards it. You're 360 knots. There we go. You're 424 knots. And again, your radius of turn is becoming so great. Yeah, you can't do hard. it. Keep it turning, keep it turning, keep it turning, keep it turning. Now go down, dive for it. Yeah, yeah. There's 500 knots. Keep it going. It's very touchy. I can understand. Now you're going on your back. You're going on your back. Keep, keep it rolling, keep it rolling. You hit something, but obviously it was not that building. 440 You couldn't do it, not at that speed, not at 500 knots. In fact, the air traffic controllers were so impressed. Any pilots in the chat, man, come in and let me know how difficult is that maneuver that they actually pull off. But that's a pretty compelling argument. Um, but again, I'm going to address all this at the uh, at the end. I want to make sure that we get through this pilot portion so you guys kind of understand. So my uh, point will be a little bit more articulate. It addresses some of it, not all of it. They're making some good arguments here. With the speed of the maneuver, they thought they were looking at a military jet. But nobody knew that was a commercial flight at the time. Nobody knew that was American 77. What did you think? It was a military flight of some kind? Was... I thought it was a military flight. It was really moving fast. It was moving very fast. Like a military aircraft might move at a low altitude. Air traffic controller Danielle O'Brien stated, The speed, the maneuverability, the way that he turned, we all thought in the radar room, all of us experienced air traffic controllers, that that was a military plane. You don't fly a 757 in that manner. It's unsafe. Several military and civil pilots have expressed their skepticism about the maneuver. Commander Ralph Colstead is a former fighter pilot, air flight instructor, and a retired commercial pilot with 27 years of experience. 
At the Pentagon, he stated, the pilot of the Boeing 757 did quite a feat of flying. I have 6,000 hours of flying in Boeing 757s and 767s and could not have flown in the way the flight path was described. Commander Ted Muga, former civil and military pilot, I just can't imagine an amateur even being able to come close to performing a maneuver of that nature. Captain Russ Wittenberg, a former fighter pilot and an airline pilot for 35 years, for a guy to just jump into the cockpit and fly like an ace is impossible. There is not one chance in a thousand. To expect the alleged airplane to run these maneuvers with a total amateur at the controls is simply ludicrous. To be able to fly that curving, descending, high airspeed trajectory into a very low building, you have to be Chuck Yeager to fly that trajectory. Not only was Hani Hanjour no Chuck Yeager, but apparently he was a terrible pilot with small planes as well. An instructor from one of his flight schools stated, Hani Hanjour was not someone cut out to be a pilot. He had no motivation, a poor understanding of the basic principles of aviation, and poor judgment, combined with poor technical skills. The debunkers contend that Hanjour had obtained a regular pilot's license, and therefore he had to be able to fly. But it is exactly because of that license that major suspicions on Hanjour kept emerging. In a 2002 article called A Trainee Noted for Incompetence, the New York Times wrote that Hanjour was reported to the aviation agency after the instructors had found his piloting skills so shoddy and his grasp of English so inadequate that they questioned whether his pilot's license was genuine. The article concludes quoting a former employee at the flight school who said, I'm still to this day amazed that he could have flown into the Pentagon. He could not fly at all. The manager of another flight school in Phoenix said, I couldn't believe he had a commercial license of any kind with the skills that he had. At yet another flight school in Maryland, instructors found he had trouble controlling and landing the single-engine Cessna 172. This was confirmed in this radio interview by Nila Sagadevan, a pilot and an aeronautical engineer. You know, i got to say something about Honey Hanjur. I've spoken with two of his flight instructors. This guy could not solo a Cessna 150. Uh, it's a little single-engine two-seat trainer. And uh, what I mean by solo, it's a pilot's first time out without anyone else in the cockpit with him. It's the most simple, most fundamental flying exercise one can engage. You're seated inside the aircraft, you hit the power, you take off, make a couple of 90-degree turns, maximum altitude of around 900 to 1,000 feet, come back and land. One. You're saying this uh, alleged hijacker, Honey Anjur, could not solo 150 he could not solo in fact one of his flight instructors and i quote him he said the man could not fly at all how could an amateur who was deemed unable to fly solo in a cessna 150 had a poor understanding of the basic principles of aviation and had never sat once in the cockpit of a 757 suddenly become able to control such a large airliner flying at top speeds and even assuming he was able to reach Washington with the autopilot, why would he want to disconnect it and hand fly the plane for another eight long minutes, performing a totally unnecessary descending maneuver that A, would have drastically increased his chances of an unwanted crash, B, would have increased the danger of being intercepted, C, would have made him lose sight of the target again, D, would have forced him to a much more difficult approach near the ground, E, would have shrunk the target to a tiny strip of cement, F would have limited the possible damage to the external rings only when he could have maximized the damage and ensured the most spectacular outcome of the mission by plunging the plane onto the Pentagon's roofs from above. 
It should be noted that such an illogical maneuver from a terrorist's point of view becomes almost... Now, my thing, guys, is uh, one way to explain this is were the pilots alive, okay? Now, I, I, th I know from the commission report, some of them say, and I'm looking at it here on the laptop, that um, the, pilots, so the pilots were killed, but do we know when they were killed? Was it, you know, did they kill them? Did they slit their throats right before? Or, you know, the maneuvers were done? Or, you know, it, th there's more questions here because obviously we know that these guys were inexperienced pilots, but the pilots that, um, that they hijacked, they could have been the ones pulling some of these maneuvers because obviously they're commercial pilots. They're way more experienced. So I know on some of the flights, the pilots had been killed, uh, but uh, we don't know for sure. So again, more questions that need to be answered. But yes, it's very interesting how mediocre pilots, right? Uh, if actually they were the ones behind the steering wheel, how would that be possible? Mandatory if seen from the opposite side of the chessboard. If the operation was in fact orchestrated by someone within the military, no one would want a 757 to plunge from the sky onto the Pentagon's roof. That would cause a major devastation, cost thousands of lives, and possibly kill generals and even the Secretary of Defense. To justify the claim of having been attacked, all that was needed was a strike on the side wall in a less populated area away from the top brass offices where the number of casualties would be kept to a minimum. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but the area of the Pentagon that was hit with the strange maneuver not only satisfied all these requisites, but had just been reinforced in order to withstand a terrorist attack. Exactly where the plane went in was an area that had recently been uh, re redeveloped with very heavy uh, blast walls and firewalls. All the outside windows had been equipped with uh, Kevlar coating to guard against blast. This portion of the building that had been remodeled blast heavy blast walls put in and the old portion had already been vacated uh in preparations of the remodeling effort and the number of dead is probably considerably less than it would have been if this part of the pentagon had been up to full staff fortunately too this is exactly the opposite side of all the critical command centers in the pentagon the secretary of uh, defense's office the chairman of the joint chief's office the National Military Command, where some of the most critical military decisions are made. Fortunately, they were all on the other side of the building. The renovated section had just been reinforced by floor-to-ceiling steel beams that ran through all five floors. When the building section collapsed, the structure was held together by the web of six-by-six-inch steel columns. Between these columns was a Kevlar-like mesh, similar to the material in bulletproof vests, which kept masonry from becoming shrapnel in case of an explosion. The suspicion that a strike on this section of the building was expected doesn't rest on the major beefing up of the structure alone. Apparently, the rumor of a strike on the external ring had already been circulating among the top ranks of the military. On September 11, Jim Miklaszewski was the NBC correspondent at the Pentagon. The first time I heard the word terrorism out of any U.S. official uh, came shortly after the second plane had hit. And, uh, and I bumped into a U.S. military intelligence official, and I said, look, what have you got? And he said, obviously, this is clearly an act of terrorism. And then he got very close to me and almost silent for a few seconds. And he leaned in and he said, this attack was so well coordinated that if I were you, I would stay off the E-ring where our NBC office was. The outer ring of the Pentagon, the rest of the day, 
because we're next. Question. Even if someone could predict that the Pentagon would become a target, one would imagine a plane to plunge from the skies onto the roofs of the building. Why would anyone suggest to stay away from the external ring, in particular, unless he knew in advance what was going to happen? While we were asked to believe that 19 Islamic terrorists were responsible for the hijackings, no one has ever produced a single image of these alleged terrorists boarding the four hijacked airplanes. All major airports in the world have security cameras practically everywhere, covering every public area of the airport 24 hours a day. But the only image of the terrorists released after 9-11 was this shot from a security camera showing alleged hijackers Abdulaziz Alomari and Mohammed Atta going through a security checkpoint. The two men, however, are not boarding flight American 11 from Boston to Los Angeles, but a previous connecting flight from Portland, Maine to Boston in the early hours of September 11th. Only in 2005 were some images of the terrorists in one of the... And I remember seeing some of these footage, uh, this footage uh, before. Three airports released. They showed the group that allegedly hijacked Flight 77 passing through security checks at Washington Dulles. But the timestamp, which is always embedded in security camera recordings, was either cropped out or absent altogether. This means that the video could have been shot at any time prior to 9-11, possibly during a dry run the terrorists did along the same routes. In fact, the 9-11 Commission has stated that many of the terrorists, including Atta, Sheki, Jarrah, Hanjur, Hazmi, took cross-country surveillance flights early in the summer. There is another element that makes these images suspicious. In 2001, most security cameras functioned as time-lapse photography, recording an average of one frame per second. This video instead is a continuous recording, similar to those obtained with regular consumer-type camcorders. In any case, the fact remains that in 10 years, we have never seen a single image proving that the 19 alleged terrorists boarded the hijacked airplanes. To address this blatant oddity, the 9-11 Commission wrote that the security checkpoint in Newark, like the checkpoints in Boston, lacked closed-circuit television surveillance. But in a Los Angeles Times article dated September 13, 2001, former FBI Assistant Director Louis Shaliro is quoted saying that FBI agents examined footage from dozens of cameras at the three airports where the terrorists boarded the aircraft. We also have the account by David Brent, a technical information engineer who worked for the company that had installed the security cameras at Dulles. After the 9-11 attacks, Brent stated, I was part of a team that had the laborious task of reviewing all the video from the airport. That's every frame from over 300 cameras with 30 days of retention time. The task took three weeks of 15-hour days. So where are the images of the terrorists? Even if the checkpoints from two of the three airports didn't have cameras, we should have dozens of images of the 19 terrorists standing in line for the check-in, getting their boarding passes, moving through the lounge areas, making phone calls, using stairs and conveyor belts, visiting the duty-free shops, or having a snack before departure. Each of these premises has also plenty of cameras of their own, which are used to keep an eye on their customers. And then we should have seen the terrorists seated in the departure lounges, waiting for the boarding call, and finally proceeding through the gates that would take them to the airplanes. But we have never seen any of this. Question. Why were we never shown a single image of the 19 alleged hijackers moving through the different areas of the three airports on the morning of September 11? 
Since Washington Dulles did have security cameras at the checkpoints, why were we never shown the properly time-stamped images of the five terrorists boarding Flight 77 on the morning of September 11? Not only do we not have a single image of the 19 hijackers at the three airports on September 11, but we also don't have a single soundbite of their voices from the four cockpit voice recorders. With four hijackings that lasted between 18 and 41 minutes each, we should have some two hours of continuous recordings of what happened in the cockpits of the four airplanes. We should have heard the struggles of the terrorists storming in and overcoming the pilots, and then we should have heard their conversations in Arabic as they try to figure out where they are and how to get from there to their designated targets. But we never heard any of that. For America- Oh, shit! Oh, shit! Oh, yeah, interesting stuff, man. Interesting stuff. Like I said, I'm just sitting back watching this with y'all. American 11, the plane that hit the first tower, we were told that the cockpit voice recorder was never found. For United 175, the plane that hit the second tower, we were also told that the cockpit voice recorder was never found. For the flight that hit the Pentagon, we were told that the voice recorder was found, but it was damaged to the point that the contents were unusable. This is very curious, as black boxes are built specifically to withstand extremely high temperatures and the most violent of impacts. Planes have two so-called black boxes, actually painted orange to make them more visible. They're kept at the back of the plane. Two shells of stainless steel and a heat-protective material shield the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder. They can withstand pressure down to 6,000 meters and heat of 1,100 degrees centigrade. For United 93, the voice recorder was found, we were told, and was in good condition. But, for unknown reasons, the recording was never made public. In December 2001, members of the victims' families formally asked the FBI to release the voice recordings from the cockpit of Flight 93. But the FBI replied, While we empathize with the grieving families, we do not believe that the horror captured on the cockpit voice recording will console them in any way. At the end of the day, the only sound bites from the alleged hijackers we ever heard are a couple of clips recorded by air traffic controllers on the ground as the terrorists apparently punched the wrong keys talking to their passengers. And as you guys know, uh, Amer- uh, Ada was pretty much the mastermind of the attacks, uh, Muhammad Ada. Body move, please. Uh, going back to the airport. Don't try to make any stupid moves. Curiously, the hijacker from another flight made the exact same mistake. But these recordings could have been transmitted by anyone and from anywhere. They don't prove that the terrorists were actually aboard the planes. In fact, the opposite suspicion arises in this case, just as the Portland images seem to be the perfect substitute for the complete lack of images of the 19 terrorists at the three airports. These short sound bites, apparently generated by mistake, seem to be the perfect substitute for the complete lack of conversations from the four cockpit voice recorders. The situation becomes even more implausible if we look at the actual flight data recorders, the devices that store the technical information from the plane during the flight. For the two airplanes that hit the towers, again, we are told that the flight data recorders were never found. In the months following the destruction of the Twin Towers, every ounce of rubble that left Ground Zero was meticulously combed through in the effort to recover every possible human remain. Uh, That's when we decided the very least that we can do If we can't bring them home to their families alive, then 
we'll, we'll stick it out and bring them home to their families. There wasn't a piece of rubble that left that pit that wasn't gone over with a fine tooth comb. This practice went on until the end of the removal operations. The big pile that you see in the background there is what remains of one of the towers. The tractor basically comes in, takes a, a shovel full of it, and then he feathers it out across the field out there. The guys take rakes and they rake through it. It's very tedious, but we found we find bones constantly. As if that weren't enough, the same search was repeated at the Fresh Kills landfill in New Jersey. Every single piece of debris, having already been combed through at ground zero, went through three more passes under the careful eyes of officers and agents of the FBI and the NYPD. Yet we are asked to believe that not one, but four bright orange, practically indestructible voice and data recorders eluded a search so meticulous that it was able to recover dozens of watches, banknotes, personal documents, and even buckets of coins. Oh, for the that is interesting. Other two flights, the one that hit the Pentagon and the one that crashed in Pennsylvania, the flight data recorders were found, we were told, and were in good condition. It's from these two black boxes that the animations depicting the full flight of American 77 and United 93 were extracted. These two black boxes, however, pose a big problem. Every flight data recorder carries a metal plaque indicating the exact model and serial number of that device. This allows a flight data recorder to always be matched to the plane it was mounted on while providing some important technical information. As explained by the NTSB, the serial number is used to identify when a recorder manufacturer switched from a certain memory configuration to another. This information is necessary to perform the correct recovery of the data. In virtually every accident report filed by the NTSB in the last 20 years, both the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder's serial numbers are listed. But in the reports from Flight 77 and Flight 93, for some reason, they are not. An independent researcher has filed several Freedom of Information Act requests with the NTSB, the Federal Aviation Administration, and the FBI, requesting information on the missing serial numbers. But his requests were always denied. As no one has ever released the serial numbers of the two flight data recorders, it's impossible to know whether they came from Flight 77 and Flight 93, or from a totally different source. All in all, we have this paradoxical situation where the contents of six black boxes out of eight were never released, while the other two cannot be verified as genuine both in origin and content. As far as we know, the four airplanes that crashed on September 11 could have been totally different machines from those that left the airports earlier that morning. All right. So we covered two parts, guys, um, the air defense and we covered the hijackers. Now they're going to get into the airplanes, passenger jets or military drones. OK, so um, that completes the first part of this. As you guys can see, this is a very extensive, very deep um, documentary uh christina what are your thoughts on that so far from what you from what you saw there was so much not communication going on and i yeah. feel like they need like a lot of organization and they should have had backup if you think about it yeah yeah they were they were doing those training exercises so yeah. yeah crazy stuff guys um and we still got man we're only an hour and a half into this documentary guys this thing is almost five hours it's four hours and 53 minutes so um that concludes the first part guys um, I'll catch you guys on the next one. We're probably gonna have to do this bad boy in either a you know a two or three part. Uh, maybe I'll even edit it and put them all together in one, but we'll figure it out. 
But uh, other than that, guys, love y'all. Don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel. And uh, yeah, I know you conspiracy theorists are loving this one, man. So uh, I'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FedEx covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. You see him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico young, conspiracy. Young slime life here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants. Uh, 6 9 And then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, 6 9 ran. I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. AKA, Pushaisi violated. You're ordered to stay away from the victim. Pushaisi arrested.